Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all glory and all honor. All credit is yours. Lord, we have brought nothing to the table. We are recipients. The essence of our life as Christians is a life of gratitude for what we have, for who we are, for what we look forward to, has all been purchased by Jesus. And Lord, as Don shared, it, it is humbling to be in the presence of the redeemed, to look around and see the, the differing testimonies in this building, not only the, the testimonies of coming to Christ, but the testimonies of how you are at work today in them. And Father, as we, as we just stop for a second and just catch our breath and look around and ponder where you have been at work, God, we, we just stop and say thank you. Thank you, dear Lord. You are magnificent. And any moment, any second where we don't recognize how magnificent you are is on us. For Lord, there you are, blazing, glorious, all satisfying. So I pray, Heavenly Father, I pray for us. As sin can confuse, as we can become slow in our hearing, slow in our obedience, dusty and our attention span to your word. Dear God, would you, would you be gracious to us as your children and grant us fresh desire for you, fresh delight in you, fresh zeal to know what does the word of God say, for we love the God of the word. So breathe, Lord, I pray by your spirit, breathe fresh air into this into this group of people, myself included, Father. We, we wish for a, a stronger understanding, but also a stronger connection and devotion to you. Intimately, one-on-one, but also as a, as a church family too, Lord. So, Father, I pray, I know without a shadow of a doubt that your spirit attached to your word accomplishes your purpose in your children. So, dear Father, I pray this morning you would help me to not get in between the body and the text, but just be an instrument, a conduit that helps. But above all, Father, your Spirit would minister your Word to your people today. We are are a people that continually, daily need the truth. Lies are flooding this world flooding our lives. And I fear at times, Father, that so little truth gets poured into that. So I pray you'd stir us today for your sake, and dear God, for our sake. In Jesus' name, amen. If you uh, have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. 
And just before we jump in, I wanted to tell you that I've got kind of a, a plugged ear or an inner ear thing going on this morning. So if I go down, uh, Amber's going to come up and take off from there. So we'll see how that goes. Genesis chapter 39 is where we're going to be um, with this life of Joseph and what God is accomplishing in and through Joseph. It's a very telling moment when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl is confronted by the truth that they have been in sin and they're confronted in that sin. The light shines on them and it becomes abundantly clear I've been caught. Last week we saw that with uh, Judah, right? The, they, Judah, they come and they say, Tamar has been um, immoral, and now she's pregnant. What do you want us to do with her? And immediately he rushes to, I want her to be burned. Do away with her. She should not be doing that. Remember, she's promised to my son, not that they'll ever get married because he doesn't want that to happen, but nonetheless, for the viewing audience's sake, he says, let's burn her. She comes and she says, well, um, hold on a sec, the man who I'm pregnant by owns these items. Can I show them to you? She shows them to Judah. They're his items. And do you remember his response? She is more righteous than I. Now you read that and it's kind of, uh, you feel like, man, this guy's just getting pounced on. But the truth is, that's a story of grace. Because he recognized his lack of righteousness. Beloved, it's a wonderful day when God enables us to see ourselves rightly and to see our lack of righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. When you mourn for your poverty of spirit, the Lord Jesus said. But it's quite another telling moment when a man is wrongfully accused and deep in his soul between he and the Lord, he knows that's not true. But everybody believes it's true. And how that person responds is extremely telling about them, about their level of maturity in Christ, and where they're at. And so we have a very fascinating contrast this morning. Last week, as we looked with Judah, we saw Judah, a man who was acting in sexual immorality, caught in sexual immorality, and then had to fess up to it. With Joseph today, we see Joseph with a false accusation thrown at him that it appears the majority at least say they believe, and he suffers for it. And I want you to pay careful, careful attention to his reaction to a set of pretty daunting circumstances. But first, I want you to look, chapter 39, at the presence and blessing of God in Joseph's life, okay? Uh, remember, this guy has had a kind of a pampered childhood up to this point, but then after that, his brothers took him, they roughed him up a little bit, they stole his coat, threw him in a pit, said, you know what, why would we kill him? He's our own flesh and blood. I got a better idea, let's make money off of him. So they sell him, they send him out, and now he's a slave. Let me pray for these guys real quick. Father, I pray for these first responders as they're rushing to somebody's great need to the point that they called and asked for uh, 911. And, and um, Lord, I pray that you'd give them wisdom and the ability of, of how best to help uh, somebody in their great need. Uh, Lord, it could potentially be one of the worst days of their life. We don't know, but 
you do, and I pray that uh, you would be with these folks. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much in our society. We have people ready, willing, and prepared to respond to needs like that. Thank you, Father, for that grace in our culture in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Joseph is, has had kind of a rough go at this point, sold into slavery. Well, that's not where the story ends. Look at chapter 39, verse 1. And we're looking at verses 1 to 6 for this first chunk that we're going to take. My plan is to clear the whole chapter. We'll see what happens. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he, ha- he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So catch this. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. We'll see why that's important in just a sec. So here's Potiphar who purchases this young man, and up to this point, Joseph has, it's been kind of tricky. Because, Lord, you gave me a, a loving father. Loving father treated me so well. He brought me up to 17 years of age. And then because of the evil hatred of my brothers, I got sold into slavery. I got a bum rap. I got th- the shaft in this whole thing. Now what? And the next scene is we see that they sold from uh, the Ishmaelites, now sold here, to Potiphar captain of the guard, a a leader among the leaders. He's in charge of this this guard of soldiers. And Potiphar purchases him. Now he's just a slave. But he's a slave that happens to have God's hand upon him. And that, that phrase is interesting where it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Well, he's omnipresent, so the Lord's with everybody. So what's that mean? Well, the idea is that the Lord is present in power, in particular grace, in in blessing Joseph in what he's doing. The rest of this passage just kind of unfolds, telling us what that means, that the Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph in encouragement. He was with Joseph in blessing and power. He was with Joseph in the sweetness of his presence. Um. There's a statement Joseph is going to make in this chapter a few verses down that reveals that there is an intimate relationship between he and his God. Joseph found great favor in the sight of his earthly master, and Joseph was put in charge of all that he had. Now, catch this, guys. It's an interesting principle. God's rich blessing overflowed onto this home because of Joseph's presence. Did you hear that in the passage? It said that, Because of Joseph, there was great blessing over these Egyptians. They are not God's covenant people. They have no special relationship with with the Lord. But because of the presence of Joseph, 
amongst them. God's blessing in Joseph's life then blessed those. It's kind of like a, an overflow that goes into Joseph and then flows out to this people. God's rich blessing in the life of one of his children profoundly affecting those he's around. Now, the application is right on the nose of the text. I don't have to spend much time uh, applying that. Bloom where you're planted, Christian. Where you, where you work, where you live, where you, where you rub shoulders with different people. Where God has you, you should have a rep, a reputation as somebody who, man, there's something different about that person. Now, I mean that positively. Because <laughs> we've all been there where there's something different about that person. That's not what I mean. What I mean is they recognize there's an there's a inner joy, there's a, there's a calmness. They just don't seem as ruffled. They're not irritated. They're, there's some difference. And I'm not saying, beloved, that therefore we are the perfect example all the time. No, we're sinners saved by grace. But there's got to be a difference when somebody finds out you're a believer. There's got to be. That your good works shine before men and they want to give glory to your Father who's in heaven because of what they've seen in you. I don't care for the old school term or phrase that said, preach the gospel every day and sometimes use words. I don't care for that because nobody gets saved by seeing your moral character. They get saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the, but the moral character may be a vehicle... seem to be pretty forthright. I don't know if that's me or not. Okay. Um, so these, this aspect of how we live our lives should profoundly catch the attention of people. It should affect people in what they see going on in our lives. Here's Joseph living a life that none of us would really wish upon ourselves at this point. Taken from his family, beaten, sold, and now he's a slave. No rights of his own. And what does he do? He complains because he's a victim, right? You see that in the text? No, I don't either. It's not there. Rather, what Joseph does is he does, quote-unquote, bloom where he's planted, and all of a sudden, God's grace, his rich blessing is on this young man to the point Potiphar goes, all this thing, everything this guy does succeeds. Everything he does, he succeeds at. It seems as if there's some force or something profoundly blessing him. God seems to be in his presence to the point that his, his master or employer, you could say, recognizes this. This should be the reality for any employer that has Christians working for them. There should be a great difference between the lost employee and the believer. It's all too often the case that the Christian employee actually gives the opposite impression. We truly should seek to bloom where, we, where the Lord plants us, seeking to honor Him and work diligently as unto the Lord. But beloved, I mean, you guys have been around enough. You've seen that the reverse is true far too often, where somebody goes, and he says he's a Christian. Well, that's not the case with Joseph. Joseph is not a poor example. Joseph, Joseph 
is a bright, shiny example of somebody who fears the Lord and God's blessing is on him. To the point the employer can't deny it. And so he goes so far, or the the slave owner goes so far as to saying, okay, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. But it goes farther than that. Potiphar not only puts him in charge of everything, but then the scripture actually says, and he had no concern of anything. Trusted him so much. Now think about this. Remember, this is, this is a, a slave or a servant that he purchased. Okay? But it, it morphed into something far more than that. It morphed into this idea that I truly trust that young man. And so I want him in charge. Joseph, you've shown yourself trustworthy. You're bright. You're going places in this household. (laughs) And so he has no concern. But I I don't want you to miss it, okay? Because you could take that text and you could do some serious damage with that text. Because you could take that text and you could see all the rich blessing because of the works done by Joseph, but it's not what the text says. The text says that it was God's good hand on Joseph, which I would argue is another way of saying the grace of God active in Joseph's life. God is absolutely active and is worthy of the glory in this whole predicament. Joseph proved to be a trustworthy slave that there was no concern in Potiphar regarding his things in the field or in the home. Joseph showed that, and I believe that that is a a profound reminder that it is God's good hand on Joseph. God is at work in Joseph. So this is going to be pretty sweet, right? And then I say the end, and that's all we know about Joseph's life. Not so much. Actually, it's going to get trickier, even more tricky than it has been before. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Now listen to this question. Think of the integrity of this young man. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see the switch there? His reference is to Potiphar. Potiphar has done this. Potiphar has done this. He's given me this. He's given me this. He's given me this. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And your brain's almost prepared to hear against Potiphar, but he doesn't say that. He says, how could I do this great sin against God? Which, the sin against Potiphar would be terrible in and of itself. But that's not where Joseph's thinking is. Joseph's thinking is at a far higher level than simply, I don't want to blow this good job that I've got. It's not that kind of weak, this will do harm to my profession, This is between him and the Lord. How could I go and sin against Almighty God in such a way? Let alone sin against my master, Potiphar. Now, 
Would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 7? Just before junior high school, my grandfather sat down with me and encouraged me to read Proverbs chapter 7. And, and I could tell by the way Grandpa was talking was this was not simply a, this would be a good passage for you to study. It was etch this in your soul, young man. And so I say this to all of us, etch this in your soul, but particularly, particularly to you young men, etch this in your soul. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I want you to listen carefully. My son, keep my words, and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have, uh, yeah, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. Isn't that interesting, Egyptian linen, considering what we're looking at in 39? I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her. Now listen to this description in God's word of what this man is like in this moment. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know what it will, that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. And here is almost a historical lesson of so many men in particular in history. For many a victim, 
has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Turn back to Genesis 39, if you would. That chapter has had one of the most profoundest impacts on my life, in part because of the intensity in my grandfather's eyes when he called me to go to that passage at a very young age. That that temptation, that pull, that struggle of sexual immorality has just slain so many people. So many people. It has done damage that was absolutely... You, you are almost in awe at the ability of what sexual morality and that particular sin has done in the lives of people. And I say people, typically you'll hear folks make reference just to the men, but that's not, that's not just the case. That's not true. Um, there is sexual morality, male, female, kids. It's, it's all over the place. Let us not fool ourselves thinking anybody in here is immune from this sin. But I put my finger particularly on young men because of this text this morning. Here's Joseph, a young man, sold by his brothers in a strange place, and he gets a temptation thrown at him from left field he didn't see coming that has potential to absolutely destroy his life. Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph. Remember, he's handsome in appearance, good-looking guy. And she sought him sexually. This, no doubt, brought some deep, deep challenges to his daily life. Joseph, in a great showing of integrity, declined. Now, I want you to notice his his response to this, okay? So look down at your Bible, verse 8. But he refused, and it's just just a strong word. He refused. No. No. Period. And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house, and he's put everything that is in that here that is in my charge. He is not greater than I in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you're his wife. Duh! How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now look at verse 10, because this is where it's so tricky, you guys. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, this was not a one and done. This was not where she approached him and he felt strong that day and said, no, day after day, after day, after day, maybe in her thinking, she's thinking, I'll find him in a weak moment. One of these times, I'll find him in a weak moment, and I'll snag him. He'll step into that snare, that, that arrow will pierce his liver. One of these days in a weak moment, this guy will fold. And Joseph, day after day after day, says, No! God's good hand is on this man. 
that he has the ability to take that, to see that rightly and respond correctly is a sign of grace active in his life. What a profound temptation being thrown at this young guy. Joseph could have easily rationalized this sin. Now think about that carefully with me, okay? He could have easily rationalized this sin. Here's a couple thoughts. This is how sin works. She was the wife of the master, after all, and she did say it. And all I am is basically I'm owned by them, so I guess I'll do it. I am the slave of this home. It was most likely not the first occurrence of this sin by her. Okay? The language of the text lends itself to think that this was probably something that she had been doing and was now, there's another young man there, and so why not take advantage of this opportunity? Joseph is a young man, strong sex drive most likely, and strong pulls in that area. I'm just thinking, as far as the ability, the slippery slope, where this guy could rationalize this sin, this would not be that hard for the brain to give in somehow and make it, make it make sense. Joseph, he says, no one, potentially, no one will ever know. She's not going to tell the master. And I'm not going to tell the master. Very fascinating situation considering our study last week with Judah. As Judah is going up and he passes the, in his mind, a prostitute who actually turned out to be Tamar. And he, 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 ha, he sleeps with her, leaves his things with her, and that thought press, remember, he sends his friend with a goat, goes with a goat, comes back, can't find her. Okay, let her keep the items. No big deal. Nobody will ever know. It's fine. And then he gets hammered hardcore with a confrontation. But here in the passage, you see Joseph Guys, this is not that hard for Joseph to rationalize himself into giving in. And yet, the the profundity of the text is that there's not even a hint of Joseph even considering doing it. It doesn't say that he struggled with it. Now, did he or did he not? I don't know. All I know is the text doesn't give a hint of Joseph considering giving in to this sin. Rather, his reaction is an immediate refusal, day after day after day after day, shutting her down every day, which appears to have challenged her more and more to keep searching after him. Well, this reaches a fever pitch. If you look at verse 11, it says, But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house... Okay, so you see it's, it's setting up, right? She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Beloved, there are times when temptation comes into our life where we need to walk through those temptations. And I don't mean give in to the temptation, I mean endure it, Ask the Lord to keep us strong and walk through it. But there are other times you run as fast as you can away from it. Joseph here does not say, be strong, Joseph, be strong, Joseph. No, he leaves his coat in her hand and flees. As fast as I can. i got to get away from this woman. 
I got to get away from this temptation. I cannot place myself in the presence of this. There are times, you guys, when we have temptations in our lives, not just sexual temptations, but any temptations, where the best answer is, get it away from me, or get me away from it. I don't need that. I don't want that. It's not going to be a part of my life. It will not be in my presence anymore. This is why it's try carefully to not have ice cream in the freezer. <laughs> so she seeks after him. She catches him. So you, you hear how weird this is getting? She's actually physically clutching him. She caught him. Pleading, lie with me. To the point... Somehow this guy weasels out of his coat and keeps running, and she's there holding the coat. What what kind of personal integrity is in this young man that in the midst of that, his first response is, absolutely not, and I will run away from you? Well, her lust turns into hate just like that. Look at verse uh, 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she needs witnesses, right? She called to the men of her household and said to them, See? (laughs) Notice the he. Underline the he in your text. Who is that? That is Potiphar. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came, into, he came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Now, this is fascinating, is it not? What I find so interesting is how fast this woman can develop this game plan. Notice the first thing she does, she recognizes the coat, right? Aha, I've got an article of clothing. By the way, I was thinking about this. If I were to ever write a book on the story of Joseph, I would title it The Coats of Joseph. Because as you walk through the life of Joseph, you just track with his coats. You've got the coat of love, given by love from his dad. Then you have the coat of deception from his brothers to his dad, right? Right, you see that. And and then uh, you see the coat that it's stripped off of Joseph. Well, again, now we see the coat is used in another deceptive tactic by Potiphar's wife. Not the same coat, I recognize that, but the same dude wearing the coat. And so the coats of Joseph, I think, could be a good guidepost for how you study this life of this young man. But what you see is she finds that garment and goes, Aha, I know what I'll do. Oh, boys, come in here. They come in. Because what does she need? She needs a story. But in order to have a proper story, you need other witnesses. Are they true witnesses? Not in the least. But she's the master's wife. They're the slaves. You better be on my side or it's not going to look too pretty for you. So I want you to be in agreement. But do you catch the language she uses in reference to her own husband? He has brought a Hebrew in our home to laugh at. It's one of the classic, classic uh, schemes when somebody really wants their own way, they come up to somebody, say it's somebody in leadership, and they say, a number of us have thought. 
And right then, whoever's in that leadership should ask this question, can I have all the names of every last one of them? Because usually it's a trick. You just say a number of us because you add more, and that way it sounds stronger and you can get them to fold. So she comes to these men and she says, look what he did. He left his garment here. His garment here, that's why I yelled. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to some of these passages, and part of me goes, I wonder if she ever pursued any of the other men that she just called in. Don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. But nonetheless, she says, this is what happened. He brought him in here to laugh at us. He sought to violate me, and I am humiliated. What are we going to do about this? Completely unfounded, a complete false accusation with no grounds whatsoever out of thin air from the one who was actually the pursuer. All right. Oh, man. Okay. Let's, let's keep going. Um, she called to the men of her house. I read, verse 15. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought amongst us, <laughs> that woman you gave me, right? We're all the way back with Adam and Eve here. Came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Now please notice, beloved, it doesn't say his anger was kindled at Joseph. This afternoon, I challenge you to consider who was he angry at. Let me ask you this. Who, at this point, seems to be more honest? Who, at this point, has complete control of every possession and everything that Potiphar has? And is this the first time this woman has had some kind of weird run-in, and does Potiphar really know that she's not stepping out on him? So who's he angry at? Doesn't say but I have my thoughts. <clears throat> and Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, I'm going to stop there, you guys. I had planned to go to 23, but 23, or 21 to 23 really lends itself into chapter 40. So let me stop there and give you just a, one point of application that comes to my mind as I think through what's taken place here. At some point, as Joseph is rotting in prison, it would make all the sense in the world, and none of us would be judgmental, to hear him say, Really, God? Really? So I have a very simple question I just want to pose to you this morning for your consideration. Do you trust the Lord? Now, I know, very much a preacher question, very much a church question, Sunday school, church 101, I get that, but I'm asking you point blank, do you trust him? Like, truly, do you trust him? And, and I would hope your answer would be, yes. Well, then let me continue. Do you truly believe what we have read and seen regarding our God's work in the details of his children's life, particularly in the life of Joseph thus far? 
What impresses me about Joseph is not what he says so much as what he does not say. He does not cry out to God for justice. He does not demand what he's owed. Rather, he appears to confidently receive the hand dealt to him by the Lord and blooms where he's planted. I'm convinced that the root of this is found in Joseph's theology of God. Now, catch me on this. Our reaction to the circumstances of our lives is one of the greatest proofs of the maturity in our Christian life. One more time. Our reaction to the circumstances of our lives is one of the greatest proofs of the maturity in our Christian life. How do you respond to the circumstances in your life? Do you really believe what you believe? Raj, I'll use you as an example. A good one this time. (laughs) As you stand there and declare the sovereignty of God in the midst of a a pretty good set of circumstances, I I don't say this to puff you up, you know that, because you believe in the sovereignty of God, as I do. But I will tell you, Roger's not saying that because he stood in front of you. He really believes that. Which is a sign that God is active in his life. And I praise God for what he's doing in our brother. How you respond to those circumstances is revelatory of how much you really do trust him. Because see, I can tell, I can preach up here all the time, you guys, about the sovereignty of God and we need to trust Him. I can say it Sunday in, Sunday out. But when life smacks you hard and your response is, the Lord is a good, gracious God who's still beside me in the midst of my pain. I'm not saying the pain's not real, but I'm saying you recognize the good hand of God. See, this is the interesting part. In, in what portion of Joseph's life is God not good to him? When does God cease to be good to Joseph? My answer, theologically, is never. And the cool part, Joseph's answer is never. At the end of this whole predicament, Joseph is the one who will declare, God meant this for good. God's on purpose here. And so... I ask you that as just kind of a pointed question from my heart to yours, and it's one Dan Mason's asking Dan Mason way, way more than I'm asking you. How do you respond to the circumstances that the Lord brings into your life? Do you find yourself wanting that victimhood mentality? Do you find yourself wanting to decry what was owed to you? Then I would ask you, when was the last time you took a good, sharp, hard look at the truth of the gospel? Because the longer and the deeper I look into the truth of the gospel, the more I am simply amazed by his grace on a daily basis. So how are you responding? How's your reaction? Do you really trust him? My guess would be this, and I'll close with this. And I apologize for going over you guys. I didn't intend really to do that. I'll close with this. I would imagine every last one of us at some point says, 
God, I know you're in control, but I have no idea what you're doing with this one. I would see that absolutely as a trusting response to circumstances. It doesn't mean that you grin and you enjoy all of it. What it means is that as those circumstances hit you hard, you look to the Lord. You look unto Him in the midst of it. And trust Him in the midst of it. And rely on the precious resources of His church family. And then what I've seen and heard from older saints is that when you look behind yourself, you see the the precious, gracious hand of God. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for your